This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Thing from Another Medium, the podcast about cross gender adaptations. I'm Adam. I'm a non binary literature nerd who loves movies. And I'm Maeve. I'm a trans femme film nerd who Adam makes read books sometimes. <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about Pet Cemetery, directed by Mary Lambert, based on the book by Stephen King. And that, of course, makes it a cross gender adaptation. And we're here to talk about the book, the movie, and everything in between. All right. This was one of the films that I've, I saw before we cooked up the idea for this podcast, and it was one of the first ones I thought of as a result. But this was also the first time I read the book itself. And Stephen King is, of course, an author who needs no introduction. We've talked about Carrie before, and I guess the difference between king's approach to carry and king's approach to pet cemetery is that pet cemetery was a lot more autobiographical um in ways in that while the actual incident that happens mid book that starts the ramping up of the horror wasn't a part of king's life it was the lead up to that and the sort of questions the book asks and delves into were based on King's life. Like he was working as a visiting professor at a university in Maine. They paid for a house for him and his young family to live in. That was next to a road where chemical trucks blazed past. And he had been warned by locals that a lot of animals die on that road. And there actually was a little pet cemetery where kids uh, buried their pets in in the woods near that house. And at one point, Stephen King actually had um, rushed to stop his then young son, Joe Hill, from running into the road. He was thankful that the kid tripped before he could get there. But that obviously does not happen in the book and the film. That was really a very important moment of tone setting for me, too, reading the book and then watching the movie, because I hadn't watched the movie, I knew about the premise, and I had always been kind of dismissive of it, but it gets a lot of power when you read King's preface or introduction or whatever, and he says, if I may, this happened to my buddy Eric. <laughs> but yeah. King considers this his scariest. A lot of the King nerds we know consider it at least up there as one of his best and his most frightening. King has written so many books that are just nailed into the culture. The Shining, Carrie, the Dark Tower series to an extent, but Pet Cemetery is also up there. And that in this latest uh, rage of new Stephen King adaptations that happened in part due to the success of it, Pet Cemetery was one of the first to be brought back. And yeah, I think the reason it stuck is because the book and the movie, to a lesser extent, it's so internal. Like, it's very much a movie about 
the events of the plot second and the thematic implications of what's going on first. It's all about the sort of emotional and psychological reaction you have to death, like both trying to make sure it doesn't happen and dealing with it when it does and remembering it years later. And you can't get much more universal than that. There's this very fun passage in the book where the narration says something like, you can't be sure about taxes, but you can be sure about death. Yeah, like, I have to do my taxes for the first time, and I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm pretty sure I am going to die someday, so there's that too. Yeah, you can't avoid getting morbid when you talk about Pet Cemetery. He's a doctor. His family moves to this road where all the pets keep getting run over so many that there's a pet cemetery there. And soon his daughter's beloved pet cat has to join the ranks. The cat's uh, death happens when his daughter, as well as his wife and their young son, are back home in Chicago having Thanksgiving with his in-laws, the parents' grandchildren, his wife's mom. And in that point, their kindly old neighbor, Judd Crandall, takes pity on the idea of a five-, six-year-old coming back home to find that her beloved cat has passed and takes Lewis Creed, the doctor guy, out past the pet cemetery to an old uh, Micmac burial ground where he carefully instructs Lewis to bury the cat and make a stone cairn. And this leads to, the next day, the cat seemingly coming back from the dead. But there is something different about the cat. The cat is a lot more morbid, I guess. The cat is a hunter, when previously it was not. It seems to have grown an attachment to Lewis, where... Previously, the cat's opinion on him was, uh, yeah, he's there, I guess. And a few months after that, two-year-old Gage runs into the road and is run over by a truck. And in his grief, he digs up Gage's grave and buries him in the same burial ground he buried Church in. And that is where all the really nasty stuff starts. That summary you gave really sums up the differences between the book and the movie for me because the book, as I said, it's dealing with these internal ideas and a book with narration is allowed to deal with internal thoughts in a much more complete way. You're constantly following the inner thoughts of not just the husband and father, but everyone involved and like their private fears and like the weird associations they have, the like dumb pop culture things that can lodge in your brain and come to be like the most important concepts in your life. And that's what I really responded to in the book. And I don't think anyone could really hope to translate that to film. And the stuff in the film, it has the same events, but because you're robbed of that internal element and also because, frankly, the actor playing the husband and father isn't enormously great you're missing a lot of that and there are some things that come in to take their place but it definitely adds a whole different cast to the story 
Yeah, I was going to talk about Dale Midkiff as Lewis Creed, mainly in that he has the personality of a beige wall. Every time I try to describe him, I think of other actors and I say he's like a less interesting version of that. Like he's a less interesting version of Billy Campbell. At one point, I was describing him to people, and I said he looks like every Joss Whedon leading man smashed together into one person. Because each time I looked at him, I'm like the first time I looked at him from like a side profile, I was like, okay, there's a bit of Fillion in there. Yeah, I, I noticed Fillion too, especially in how he's always sort of like casual and hangdog, and you can't have that in your character who's meant to be constantly ruminating on mortality. Yeah, I figure that they asked more prominent actors first, and they ended up settling on Midkiff, who, when you look at his filmography, it's not particularly impressive. Pet Cemetery was kind of the biggest he ever got in his career. Apparently it was going to be Bruce Campbell, not Billy Campbell, Bruce Campbell, but he wasn't able to do it. Oh, man, that would have been such a more interesting thing. Of course, the one I was thinking of because <laughs> Jeffrey Combs. Oh, God, I think that actually goes a bit too far in the other direction. <laughs> but, like, you're in this guy's head so much of the time, you get to know all his weird thoughts in the book that I think you need someone with that Jeffrey Combs energy to match the character in the book. And if you want to do something different, you need someone with a very clear internality that I wish I could say the actor has, but he doesn't. I guess I see where you're getting at with Jeffrey Combs, because I could definitely imagine Jeffrey Combs vocalizing the parts in the book where Lewis Creed thinks about how he doesn't want to get church neutered because he feels like that would in some way neuter himself as well exactly yeah king is very good at making those characters who have the like crazy thoughts that people have every once in a while and turning that into their whole personality yeah like when you say kinginess, you're talking about a number of things you're talking about king's style of prose the character types he tends to put in and of course the setting of maine and speaking of maine is pet cemetery the only king adaptation to actually shoot in maine you would know better than me i think well i didn't do any actual research into that but at the same time the movie was shot entirely in maine there must be something else like I'm mixing up these two movies, Prince of Tides and Hearts in Atlantis. Which one was a King adaptation? Hearts in Atlantis. Thank you. Was that is that in Maine at all? I have no idea. The only thing I know about Hearts in Atlantis is that the book pretty explicitly ties into the Dark Tower, and that when they filmed it, they didn't have the Dark Tower rights, so they just sucked all the Dark Tower out of it. And as a result, you just kind of get like half the story because the Dark Tower stuff was so important to the book. That's like how they're not allowed to say King Kong in the King Kong movies. That's Kong. He's king around here. 
that's the silliest part of the modern like tyranny of copyright. There are lots of awful parts, but then you get to parts like how a King Kong movie can't call him King Kong and it becomes silly. Yep. But back to Pet Cemetery, the issue of having to translate this to film, I actually like how well most of the other actors are able to get across the weird mix of emotions that the kinginess, like you say, calls for. Like Denise Crosby, to go back to Star Trek actors, Tasha Yar herself, Miko Hughes, who was like three years old at the time, and like whatever you think of the movie, Mary Lambert has to be commended for making a movie that involves so much animal and kid stuff. Yeah, Mary Lambert actually did have to fight for Miko Hughes. The studio wanted her to cast twins like they did for the actor playing Ellie. Yeah, their younger son is like 20 to 24 months, like not even two. And the actor who they cast, Miko Hughes, who was in other stuff, he's three and he does such a good job. It's just astounding. Yeah, like Mary Lambert found this kid and was basically like, He's got to be in the movie. And you see him, you see why. Like, you can argue about creepy kids stuff being kind of hack and road at this point, but Hughes pulls it off so well, and it's absolutely ridiculous that he was able to give this performance at that age. Before he's the creepy kid, he gives two solid hours of being a regular kid. Well, one hour less. And the other crucial piece of casting that Mary Lambert fought for was Fred Gwynn as Judd Crandall. Apparently, Paramount thought that audiences wouldn't take him seriously because, you know, he was in The Munsters. And then he just walks on and gives one of the best performances in horror history as Judd Crandall. And I stand by that. Oh, yeah. I think part of it is the character in the book, the like guy who has all the information about the pet cemetery. And it's like, do you trust him? Do you like him? How well intentioned is he? He's such a compelling character and one who can do that externally, not internally like most of the other characters. But then you add Fred Gwynn, who's like six foot six, pure white hair. He's got an amazing face. And a voice that, like, makes me think I could make something of myself someday. He does the kingy stuff so well. Yeah, the Down Easter accent. Wow. Like, it's just such a fascinating performance to watch. And probably the highlight of the movie, besides the absolute horrific shit that goes on in the climax of the film. I think for me, another highlight of the movie was the score. Elliot Goldenthal did it, known for your beloved Batman Forever and Batman of Ro- and Robin, of course. We but, stand a king. Yes. And he brings a lot of that primal, emotional, internal, universal feeling to it because, like, this is a guy who started out getting noticed in the industry because he wrote operas, full-on classical-styled operas, and I think that's the tenor you need for this kind of story. And he definitely brings it, especially in the opening scene, which is like all silence over the opening credits, seeing this pet cemetery and that and his music does a whole lot to set the tone. Yeah, my very first note, Elliot Goldenthal's score owns very hard. 
I now know where Jordan Peele got the idea for the opening of Us from. God, Us is so good. Is Pet Cemetery one of the tapes that you see in the opening scene with Hands Across America? I don't think it is. The only one I remember is The Right Stuff. Hmm, okay. And I guess the joke's on us, because now we know what it's like to be trapped inside of, like, sterile environments for years, acting on other people's whims with no control. Yep. Maybe we should head to the cinematography corner. Welcome to the cinematography corner. Here's the thing. I like cinematography. I am nuts for it. I would fuck an Aerie Alexa 65 if I could. And it gave consent, of course. <laughs> All right. Well, this is where I talk about it so that it doesn't take up the entire episode. And this was a horror movie made in the 1980s. But also the cinematographer for the movie was one Peter Stein. All of his best-known work is in 80s horror his very first credit was Friday the 13th Part 2, one of the more stunningly mediocre entries in the series. His other credits include Chud, which spawned the name of no one's favorite mid-zeros movie website. And everyone's favorite, Chud 2 Bud the Chud. <laughs> Did he shoot that too? If so, it's not on his Wikipedia page. But he went back and forth between fairly small horror and TV movies mainly. He also he actually worked on Dale Midkiff's prior credit to Pet Cemetery, which was a TV movie called Elvis and Me. He also shot two Ernest movies, another Stephen King adaptation, Graveyard Shift, and he currently uh, teaches cinematography at Tisch. Oh wow! Okay, uh, how did he do on this movie? I mean, maybe it was just the quality that I watched it at, which wasn't great. It's a very overcast, grimy, foresty movie, and the composition is good, but at the same time, it's not necessarily like a real blow-your-socks-off movie. But you know what? There's room for that. It's very 80s horror aesthetic, and I feel like it's effective in regards to the content of the film. The parts I liked best were when the internal fears of the characters got represented on screen and most notably you have like scenes where people see visions of dead loved ones and then it turns out they were looking at something different but also maybe they were looking at like a ghostly apparition or something and i liked how those were done you also have the big helicopter shot of the mcmac burial ground which was apparently just shot on a random hill in Maine, which, you know, of course it was. And, like, just the layout of it is striking. You could shoot that from any angle, and it looks good. So, of course, they used that shot a few times in the movie. Yeah, I like the production design of both the Pet Cemetery and the Burial Ground. And I also like how subtle the zombie cat effects on the zombie cat are. I didn't watch the more recent adaptation of Pet Cemetery, which starred uh, Jason Clark as Lewis Creed and John Lithgow as Judd Crandall, but they cast an evil-looking cat as Church in the remake, and in here, Church is just, you know, he's a boy. 
Yeah, he's very fuzzy, got a very lovely shade of gray fur. And meanwhile, the remake church, was, which was apparently two cats. They had one cat play pre-dead church and a different cat play post-dead church. I like that. I like that idea. And like the cat who played post-dead church, which I'm pretty sure died uh, shortly after the film was released. There's like a photo of the cat at the premiere of the movie wearing a bow tie and it's absolutely wonderful. But you look at the makeup they put on the cat and whatnot and you can just tell that the 2019 film was just so much less subtle. People I know who've seen it have told me that it is bad and I'm inclined to believe them. But at the same time, I might watch it anyways. It's streaming and sometimes bad horror hits right. I know it changes some elements of the events of the story. I'm not going to say more, but that's probably the right decision because the important thing is the universal like death stuff. True. And actually something I will give the remake credit for without seeing it. Jason Clark is a much better choice for Lewis Creed than Dale Midkiff. Yeah, he's a guy who is defined by, like, not being able to overcome whatever problem he's dealing with. And I've noticed that he gets put in a lot of horror movies because he's so good at doing that note. Like, did you see the Winchester movie? I did. It it wasn't good, but I can't blame Clark. He was doing good work there. There is a, like, crazy, completely surreal movie to be made about the Winchester Mystery House, and that was not that movie. Yeah. But, you know. It's like the Spirit Brothers looked like they were going to be really interesting filmmakers for, like, two minutes because of Daybreakers, and then everything they've come out with since has just been completely diminishing returns. Wait, were they the Predestination guys? Yeah, but I didn't like Predestination. I heard what predestination was based on and that ruined predestination for me yeah like i figured you've read it if not seen the film i i've read it and when i was watching the movie i think the credit came up like based on i'm not even gonna say it and it's like oh so now i don't have to see the entire movie yeah like ethan hawk and sarah snook are great in it but at the same time yikes 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 you got to do a lot of chewing. It, gristly science fiction. Not grizzly, gristly. You got to chew on it. I mean, I do like gristles, so. I think to get us back to Pet Cemetery and the notion of, like, being based on classic short stories, in the book, it opens with an epigraph from The Monkey's Paw. And, like, The Monkey's Paw, like, legendary short story, hugely influential, been turned into everything. Like, people who watched Wonder Woman 1984 will know how universal the idea is. But if you sit down and read it, it's depending on how big your typeface is, like three to five pages long. It's their first wish kills their son. Their second wish is for the son to come back to life. Their third wish is to get rid of the other two wishes. And you're out. Yeah, of course, the monkey's paw idea has been riffed on in other things as well. When you were talking about it, my thoughts immediately went to Richard Kelly's The Box. Yeah, definitely. I think King at one point said he was going for like a modern retelling of the monkey's paw with Pet Cemetery, like ultimately doing it across the full length novel or a full length movie. It has a very different effect on the way you have to parcel out that story than a three to five page vignette yeah 
And because it's stretched out, King uses the time to just like set up who the characters are, their insecurities, their relationships. And it results in a very smart thing. Like one thing I really liked about the book was that I was able to sit with it for a bit. The movie was trimmed significantly in post-production with scenes very obviously being cut. Like you get Mrs. Creed asking uh, Lewis if they're still friends when he's about to go to his first date at work, alluding to an argument that was clearly filmed from the book where they argued about talking to their daughter about the concept of death. Yeah, you get a little of that, but not nearly as much and not enough that it makes sense. Yeah, however, that's that problem was redeemed for me from the cut of Gage going, bye-bye, dada, to a bunch of people screaming and carrying the dead body of Victor Pascal into the hospital. Yeah, Victor Pascal, that's a character who gets shifted a lot in the adaptation in the book. Like, he he's the head of the university medical center. His first day on the job, someone came in, his car ran into a tree. He's dead by the time he comes in there. And his spirit sort of comes back a couple times to, like, offer warnings to people to not do the pet cemetery thing, not bring people back to life, because as someone who's dead, he should know. The movie kind of does the American werewolf in London ghost pal thing with him at points. Like you have him guiding uh, Mrs. Creed all the way back to Maine from Chicago during the climax of the movie, and it's used for some fairly decent comedic beats, like the argument with the rental car lady. Yeah, she has to rent a car to get back home, and it's ambiguous what's happening, which I like when the ghost of the guy, his like brain still hanging out of his head, says like, oh, what about this car? And then the lady says, oh, we do have this car. Yeah, and the performance is a lot of fun. Like, it's creepy when it needs to be creepy. The comedic stuff is handled well. The actor was Brad Greenquist, and... He was apparently originally going to be in Sex, Lies, and Videotape before James Spader was cast. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, He more recently popped up in Annabelle Creation, which was a perfectly solid little horror movie. It was a small role, but still. I want to talk about the character, and he kind of doesn't fit into the internal thing we're talking about, like psychological stuff, because... He represents the normal way death works for people. Like, you die, you don't come back. That's how it works in real life. That's how it works here, unless you bury things in the magical McMac burial ground. But it feels weird that he's a character who no one except for the dad has any interaction with. Pascal in the book, he has the big sequence where he takes Creed to the bar- um, to the pet cemetery and tells him to not go beyond the branch wall. And in the film, he gets more play. Like, King wrote the script for the film himself, and he makes some adaptation choices that I think are pretty smart. Like, in the film, the evil surrounding the burial ground is left ambiguous. It's just an ambiguous something evil's going on. In the book... 
it is half explained that the spirit of a Wendigo curses the burial ground, and it's the Wendigo that is in, I guess, possessing the brought back bodies and causing them to wreak all sorts of chaos and havoc and bloodshed. That was very wisely cut from the film because that could have gone all sorts of wrong. Yeah, I see what you mean. King also composites some characters. In the book, Judd's wife, Norma, plays a pretty significant role in the first half until the character passes away. And, I mean, in the film, Norma does not exist. Instead, elements of the character are fused into a different, smaller character named Missy Dandridge, who does the laundry and cleaning and babysitting for the creeds. And with Dandridge, you have two scenes of her complaining about stomach aches, and then she hangs herself after she found out she had cancer. And the film uses her funeral in the place that the book used the funeral of Judd's wife, Norma, which is the place where Lewis talks to his daughter, Ellie, about death, and Lewis's wife, Rachel, opens up to him about the death of her sister Zelda, which was very traumatic for her and has caused her to avoid funerals, to be absolutely terrified of death, to never want to talk about it. Which goes back to those themes that are harder to explore when you're not working in a medium where you can constantly be privy to people's thoughts in the same way. And instead, what they do, this is an element I like, they turn the older sister, the one who had spinal meningitis and was locked up and couldn't walk and died eventually, they turn her into a movie monster with, like, weird, like, melted skin and clawed fingers and stuff, and she keeps popping up at the edge of peripheral vision, and then at the end she says, we're coming to get you and in revenge because I couldn't walk. Which is problematic in its own way. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the kind of decision you need to make when you're adapting this story. True. And the image of Zelda in the film was definitely... I've definitely seen it cited as traumatic for a certain section of people who write about horror today. Like, I think Meredith Borders wrote about it once. I should think so. It's a scary idea, and it's presented in a way that can really lodge itself deep in your brain because it's about, like, that presentation is something lodged deep in her brain, in Denise Crosby's brain. Indeed. Like, Pet Cemetery was a hit when it was released, but it's kind of stuck around on the peripheral in terms of 80s horror. It's often brought up as a great 80s horror movie as an afterthought. It had mixed reception at the time, but it became a VHS classic, like you put this on at sleepovers to watch a scary movie, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think there are a few factors. I think the title being misspelling does a lot. Like, apparently that was true of the Pet Cemetery in the real-life version that happened to King, and it's a very shrewd decision to make that the title of your book. I think the cover being mysterious figures and an evil-looking cat, I think that does a lot because it's very specific and very general at the same time. It doesn't promise anything, but it promises everything. And I think that the story is a modern take on 
such an elemental, like old school idea as the monkey's paw, just sort of dressed up with a coat of paint if you're being uncharitable. I think that does a lot to make it sing for people and make it stick in people's minds, whatever they actually think of the quality of the story or the film. Indeed. And also about the misspelling, I saw the trailer for the 2019 film in theaters a couple times, and every time the title screen on that trailer came up, someone would turn to someone else and say, they spelled cemetery wrong. I think that was partially intentional by King. You know the correct spelling, but the fact that you notice this is misspelling, that means you take more notice of it than you would if you just read the title. Yeah, like one of the times I saw it in theaters, I forget which movie it was in front of, it was with one of my good friends, and he saw the title screen and he just couldn't get over that they spelled cemetery wrong, and I told him that's the title of the book, but he still just couldn't get over that it was spelled wrong. I'm trying to think of other examples of misspelled titles. The only one that comes to mind offhand is The Young Visitors, visitors with an E instead of an O reputedly a novel written by a nine-year-old. It was this big, like, novelty thing at the turn of the century, kind of the equivalent of, like, My Immortal or whatever. You are going to have to tell me more about that. Look it up, The Young Visitors. It's it's a whole thing, yeah. I imagine. But yeah, I only mentioned that in part because the movie, the 1989 film, lampshades the misspelling. I, I think it would be unavoidable. Yeah, whereas the book, everyone's like, uh, yeah, kids spelled it wrong, and they don't really point it out to each other in the way that the film does. Yeah, I see what you mean. Another thing I just want to mention, uh, when Gage uh, pops up as a hell zombie, he is a different kind of creepy than the creepy hell zombie child is in the book. In the book, the child is clearly possessed and saying things that sound like, you know, Pazuzu from The Exorcist. In the film... He is still very much a child. Yeah, and I think the main reason for that decision is that you still got to have an actual child playing him and saying the stuff. And I noticed that change too, and I think it goes into this like big shift between how you experience a story in a literary sense versus in a cinematic sense. The idea with the dead people who get buried in the pet cemetery and come back, because of course the little boy isn't the first person to whom it happens, the idea is they represent all the worst parts of our lives. They have an innate sense of knowing the worst things we've done, the things we're most ashamed of, and they are going to tell it to everyone as a mode of defending itself, essentially because everyone instinctively recoils and hates the zombies and wants to stop them and kill them and whatever. And so their best method of defense is the worst parts of people's lives. And it's a very interesting way to have conflict in this story about grief. And this isn't the kind of thing that really comes across at all in the movie. And I think on one level it can't really because you're dealing with this different kind of storytelling. And on the other, like I mentioned, it's still a two-year-old kid or three-year-old kid who's got to deal with this. But I think it's going farther on the notion of like, this is still the same person you knew, 
but they didn't all come back. Something's wrong. Something's been twisted. Yeah, and you mentioned it being about grief, and I couldn't help but write a little note about how this was a horror movie about grief before. It's a horror movie, but it's also about trauma and grief. Became kind of a meme after the A24 boom. I, I know what you mean by that, hereditary and such like. Indeed. Hereditary is very much playing off the imagery of movies like this with its ev- with its evil kids. Also, the book has basically the same events. After Lewis kills a church and he kills Gage, he finds uh, the corpse of his wife, Rachel, who had came back to Maine and been murdered by Gage. He decides, seemingly in this new grief, that because he's burying Rachel's body so soon after she died, she won't come back cursed the way Gage and Church and everyone else did. It reminded me so much of that scene in The Simpsons where Homer is chasing the pig and he keeps going, It's still good. It's still good. She's just a little mutilated. It's still good. And in the book, it just has the wife come back in a zombie and say the word darling. It's kind of left ambiguous as to what happens next. But Paramount didn't like that, so they just had uh, Lambert reshoot the ending with the Rachel zombie design being a bit more gory and having her actually murder Lewis at the end. And then the Ramones play. It fucking rules that the Ramones did a song for this and also the song slaps. I'm not sure this is the place to get into my feelings on the Ramones. I mean, I assumed you had thoughts on them because they're a real New York band. But like, speaking of places to get into things, I think it's time we head to the gender zone. It's the gender zone. The gender zone. Welcome to the gender zone. A cross-gender adaptation means there's a lot of gender stuff to talk about, especially for two analytical gender queers like you and me. And this is going to be the space for us to really explore that. I noticed there's like the changes to the adaptation aren't as clearly along gender lines as in any other movie we've talked about, I think. And that's probably mostly because King was writing the screenplay. Yeah, and to be fair, like I do give King's screenplay a lot of credit for making some very smart and solid adapt- adaptational changes. There is, however, one moment in the film that really stands out to me as kind of sticking out on a gender line, and that is... Zelda. Hmm. I say this because Mary Lambert was auditioning women to play the character, and she ended up casting a man, and the man was put in heavy makeup. Her Part of her reasoning for this was that she thought a man playing a woman made it more unsettling. I see why you say that, and I think also it makes the character feel less real and less actually human because she only exists in the memories of Rachel and so she's not going to be an actual person she's going to be like the worst exaggerated version of a per- of a sick person from the depths of someone's nightmares and guilt and grief true but also we live in the era of JK Rowling yeah uh, yeah it's something that i just can't help but be touchy about 
Exactly, and I, and I perfectly understand why you are. There's something else I wanted to bring up in relation to gender, though, which is I was reading interviews with Mary Lambert on the occasion of the new movie coming out, and she said that after the success of the first movie, she wanted to make a sequel all about the daughter, about Ellie. And to quote her, I'm looking at the interview now, there was a time in history where it was felt that women couldn't carry a movie, especially a young girl, so it wasn't a good idea to do a sequel with Ellie as the main protagonist, said Lambert. And I think that right there says that it was a good decision to hire a female filmmaker to make this story about an entire family where everyone has their own perspective in this climate where people thought you didn't really need to have important female characters. So let's uh, talk about Mary Lambert for a second. Like, she was part of a wave of filmmakers who came up doing music videos. Like, you look through her music video credits, there are some iconic ones in there. Like, she was... She was one of the staple directors for Madonna. She directed the music video for Like a Virgin. She directed the music video for Material Girl. She directed the Like a Prayer video. Those are three of Madonna's biggest songs. Oh, yeah. She also did the Control and Nasty videos for Janet Jackson. She did some work for Sting, a video for Eurythmics, a video for the Go-Go's. She did some work with Bobby Brown. I think she also directed a live performance with Bobby Brown. So who who else was in Mary Lambert's cohort? Who else started out in music videos and then came to directing features? Well, you kind of have a whole generation of male directors who did that. You have Bay, you have David Fincher, you have Zack Snyder, you have Tarsem Singh. A lot more masculine directors than Lambert. Yeah, very much. And Lambert ended up making um, her film debut in 1987, an indie drama called Siesta that was acclaimed but didn't really do much. Um, It starred Ellen Barkin. And then after that, um, I, I guess because of the acclaim that got on the festival circuit and through critics as well as her music video work, she was definitely being looked at. She was Paramount's first choice to direct the Pet Cemetery film. She met with King. He saw that she had legitimate enthusiasm for the film and his work, so he agreed to let Lambert direct it because he had originally sold the rights to George Romero, and Romero ended up losing the rights. They ended up at Paramount, and because of a writer's strike, because King's script had already been written, she finally got the opportunity to make the movie. It's weird that even though this movie was a success and it was remembered, if not exactly acclaimed, she never really got to do anything this big again. She mostly did TV stuff and Pet Cemetery 2. Yeah, she did a movie in between Pet Cemetery and Pet Cemetery 2 that went nowhere. Pet Cemetery 2 has its fans, to be clear. I have heard some genuinely good stuff about it, but it did not do well at the time. And as a result, she's mainly been directing TV. She's been doing TV films. Like, for example, she directed an entry in the Disney Channel's iconic Halloween Town franchise. 
I saw that on her IMDb and I knew you'd want to talk about it. Like, I don't remember much of the movie, but I do remember watching it, which I can say for a lot of Disney Channel movies now that I'm thinking about it. I'm utterly clueless about Halloween Town. I think because I had never seen any of them, I assumed it was part of The Nightmare Before Christmas, which I hope is forgivable. It's not, but I see where you're coming from because you didn't really grow up with everyone's favorite multinational conglomerate. But is it also a town where it's Halloween all the time and all the monsters live there? How does that work? Yeah, that's basically it. These two kids um, go looking for their grandma. They end up getting into Halloween Town. The only other major bit I remember is that they get to Halloween Town. They tell someone who their grandma is. The grandma's a big deal. And and there's a wisecracking skeleton who drives a cab. I noticed their skeletons are comic relief in a few different things. I've been playing Hades, and you have like a training dummy who's a like wisecracking skeleton. That sounds fun. But yeah, back to Mary Lambert. She never really got a chance this big again. And as we so often have to reckon with on this series, it's probably because she's a woman. Yeah, like 1989 was probably the peak of her career as a director because Pet Cemetery was a hit, but she also directed an episode of the first season of Tales from the Crypt that year. Yeah, and that, that had huge people on it, like Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, all those people. And she was among them, but then she never got the kind of chances those people got. Like, I'm looking at the credits for the first season of Tales from the Crypt right now. The first episode was Walter Hill. The second episode was Zemeckis. The third one was Richard Donner. Four and five were Howard Deutsch, who directed Pretty in Pink, if I remember correctly, and Tom Holland, who directed Fright Night, and then Lambert. Those are still all named directors. And also, Mary Lambert's episode starred M. Emmett Walsh. Oh, wow. Maybe we should watch that. Is it on HBO Max? I don't think so, but I should check. Like, I think the problem with Tales from the Crypt is that part of why it's very hard to find is because the rights to the actual Crypt Keeper are in flux. M. Night Shyamalan was supposed to be doing a Tales of the Crypt revival, but that one ended up not going very far at all because the rights to the Crypt Keeper were in flux. I assume they hired Shyamalan because they thought they had the rights and then it turned out they didn't. This apparently happens in Hollywood more than you think. I think it's funny how George Romero and Stephen King collaborated together on Creep Show, which is their like love letter to 50s horror comics and they created their own fake version of the Crypt Keeper. And that was so popular that they then brought back the actual Crypt Keeper. And that was so popular that now no one wants to give up their share of the rights. Yeah. And also I'm continuing to scroll through uh, the Tales of the Crypt. And like some of these names are just absolutely insane. Like Tom Hanks did the Tales from the Crypt. Arnold Schwarzenegger directed the Tales from the Crypt. When I was seven, when I was in first grade and... My school didn't allow anyone to go out for recess because it was those days. Uh, they shut us up in the auditorium and made us watch stuff, and they quickly ran out of things to show us. And at one point, I think 
they just went to whatever the hell VHSs they had, and one of them was the Tales from the Crypt animated series, Tales from the Crypt Keeper, and they showed one episode, and I was always reading books instead of watching whatever dreck they had on in the auditorium, even at age seven, but I stood up and took notice of the Crypt Keeper, and then the next day, whoever did that had to come up in front of all the juvenile like impressionable 70 year olds and apologize for exposing us to such horrors and they said they swore they would never do that again because they had so many complaints from parents i was there thinking oh man that was the only cool thing and so (laughs) that's that's how i got where i am today folks yeah it sounds like it and like, I remember Mary Lambert doing an interview where she said the only job she could get after Pet Cemetery was basically Pet Cemetery 2. Yeah, exactly. It's ludicrous. She clearly has talent. This is the only non-TV work of hers I've seen, but, like, her music videos alone, as well as this film, like, this is a director who, if she was coming up now, and she had directed, you know, sort of this level of movie that Blumhouse pretty much exclusively makes today. Like, she would definitely have been getting some fairly big job offers. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of bad in the modern film industry, but at the same time, like, people are looking to give more stuff to a more diverse pool of filmmakers. Yeah, things could be way better, but they are improving. Yeah, like, Blumhouse didn't work with any women directors on any of their most popular stuff for a very long time. And that was something they got called out for and something they're trying to fix. And on that note, uh, I think it's time to start wrapping up. So Mavis, where can people find you and give you opportunities? Uh, Twitter at I am a something, uh, no spaces, no hyphens, just all undercase letters. I am a something. I'm on Twitter at Adam Bumas, A-D-A-M-B-U-M-A-S, and you can read my writing at memeinsider.com. Thanks to the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network for having us on the network. You can read them on Twitter and Insta at A-O-A-S underscore X-X. And other than that, have a medium day. Squad.